Hey, everybody, what's up? And welcome to Summarily, a podcast for busy lawyers, where lawyers like you come for CLE courses, case law updates, and commentary about the law. They also listen to Summarily for practice tips. And that is what's on tap in this episode. This is your host, Robert Scavone Jr. I'm an appellate lawyer, and I clerked at the U.S. Court of Appeals for the 11th Circuit, as well as at the 3rd District Court of Appeal here in Florida. I started summarily to help lawyers, and I recently had the privilege of speaking with Chief Judge Jack Tudor of the 17th Judicial Circuit about practice tips and best practices for trial lawyers. Chief Judge Tudor currently sits in the Complex Business Division of the Circuit Court. He was recently re-elected Chief Judge by his colleagues for a fourth term. Before becoming Chief Judge, Judge Tudor served as Administrative Judge of the Civil Division and Administrative Judge of the Unified Family Court Division. Before taking the bench, Judge Tudor was a managing partner at Stevens, Lynn, Klein, and McNichols, and he also served as the Director of the Florida Division of Alcohol, Beverages, and Tobacco. Before we get to my interview with Chief Judge Tudor, let's talk mental health. Early in my career, I battled depression. I was unhappy at my job, and the discontent began affecting my marriage. I tried to work through it on my own, but could not shake the feelings of inadequacy and the thought that my life wasn't meaningful. Thankfully, I found help. Mental health counseling changed my life. And BetterHelp can give you the tools you need to approach your life in a very different way. BetterHelp's mission is to make therapy more affordable and more accessible. All you have to do is answer a few questions and BetterHelp's online platform will pair you with a professional therapist in as little as a few days. And if the therapist isn't right for you, don't worry. You can easily switch to a new therapist at no additional cost. To sign up and support this podcast, go to betterhelp.com backslash summarily to get 10% off your first month of BetterHelp. That's betterhelp.com backslash summarily for 10% off your first month. If you're struggling like I did and like so many others do, consider online therapy with BetterHelp and start working on your mental health today. Chief Judge Tudor, thank you so much for joining me for the podcast. I appreciate it. Thank you for the invitation. Of course. Before we get to best practices and some questions that I have, not only for myself and some some uh, colleagues of mine, I'd love to hear a little bit about your background. Where did you grow up? Well, uh, I was born in Muskogee, Oklahoma, so I am a true Okie from Muskogee. And uh, we moved soon thereafter to Tennessee, so I got most of my uh, education in the state of Tennessee. And I moved to Florida after I passed the Florida Bar in 1983 and began uh, practicing law then. I practiced law for about almost 23, 24 years before Governor Bush appointed me uh, to the bench. What was law school like in Tennessee when you were in law school? Uh, well, I hate to say I don't remember much of that. Uh, <laughs> I went to law school between, uh, let's see, I took the Tennessee bar and passed in 82. So it must have been like 79 to 82 uh -huh. uh, was the period of time. I, I attended the University of Memphis uh, Law School in Memphis, Tennessee. It was a great three years. I remember that. The education part of it, uh, I don't remember a lot. I remember I... Uh, uh, had the uh, privilege of running the Barbie exam at the end. So I had to show all the videos and all the tapes to everybody. Uh, I studied with a guy uh, that I've lost contact with, unfortunately. And uh, I was just commenting the other day at the 4th District that um, the uh, the way you found out the results back then was uh, the, the, the local paper was the Tennessean, came out in uh, Nashville, and you had to wait. They didn't tell you exactly which Sunday it would be out in. <laughs> but they published the results of the bar exam, whoever passed in the newspaper on a Sunday. So uh, the guy I studied with, unfortunately, his last name was U, mine was T. So we were everywhere together, seated, et cetera. He didn't pass the bar exam and I did. 
And the terrible thing about uh, publishing everybody's name in the newspaper is all your friends and family look, look, looked in there and they could see uh, if your name wasn't on the list, you you failed the Florida bar. So times have changed a lot. Yeah. I, uh, I, I left uh, Tennessee and flew over here and took the bar exam uh, right after that in Florida. I had no idea whether I could pass a thing or not because I had to study Florida law and all, but uh, mm-hmm. I got an envelope saying I passed and uh, here I am today. And I've, uh, I've enjoyed the ride very much. Speaking of the ride, what started the ride? Why did you choose to go to law school and become a lawyer? Well, uh, that was a profound uh, discussion between me and my father. He wanted me to be a dentist and dig around in people's mouths my entire life. And I said, I'll offer an alternative. I'll go to law school instead. And that's how we compromised, to be honest with you. It was, I don't think that I ever thought about living, leaving Murfreesboro, Tennessee, where I was living. I never thought about going to law school until it was really at the very end when I started making the applications. But after he was trying to get me to go to dental school, uh, it definitely it triggered that uh, law school was a good alternative. But but why law? Like, why not get an MBA or be a doctor or a scientist or something like that? What was it about the law that persuaded you to take it on? Well, I minored in uh, corrections in in uh, in college, and uh, I got interested in uh, law enforcement in college and all in college and all that. I probably might have gone to uh, another state and become a police officer because I I kind of enjoyed that. I remember that uh, I saw a rerun of, of the other night on TV, uh, uh, Jack Lord and Hawaii Five O. That was my mm-hmm. idol. I was going to move to Hawaii and be uh, head of the uh, the fake Hawaiian uh, uh, police. Uh, so I think it was probably a little bit of law enforcement uh, curiosity and then uh, minoring in corrections that said, uh, maybe I should go to law school and do it that way. Great. Well, you certainly chose the right path. Everyone who knows you says you are a great judge and a, a great person. So well, I appreciate um, that. That's very nice. I I I have some people who uh, would probably give you a contrary view. Uh, I can show you some of their emails, but uh, they're mostly pro se's. Uh, people upset with the judiciary in general. Yeah, uh, but, uh, it, it's it's been an enjoyable uh, now almost seven years as chief judge, uh, and I've very much enjoyed uh, the privilege my colleagues have given me to do this job. All right, let's let's uh, let's get to some questions. I'll, I have some specific questions from some friends of mine that are very interesting, but I wanted to start off with motion practice. You know, obviously the, the theme of this podcast is to help lawyers, and I wanted to know, let's start with motions in limine. In my time as a prosecutor, they were underused from my perspective. Do you see a fair amount of motion in limine practice and how important do you think it is for the lawyers to file motions to eliminate for to help the judge? Okay, well, that's a really multifaceted question. There's, uh, I, in my mind, a difference between filing a motion in limine in a criminal case and filing a motion in limine in a civil case. What I see a lot, especially with practitioners who are either being told to do it by a partner or not that experienced is uh, I'll get a, I don't get them very much because I'm in the complex business court. So Mm -hmm. I'm talking about what my colleagues recited to me. I just called up a a water loss case and I got a bunch of motions in limine and the discussions I've had with my fellow judges on this subject. Sometimes these generic motions in limine do Mm -hmm. nothing but to aggravate the judge because they're asking the judge to kind of pre-try their case on a whole bunch of issues that nobody can ever tell you will ever even come up in the case. So it's more common for me, if I have a true motion in limine to say, are you gonna say anything about this during opening? And and if he says no, then I'm gonna say, well, whenever the witness or the subject comes up, we'll take it outside the presence of a jury and I'll resolve it then. Because I think for uh, practitioners, they, know intimately the details of their case when they begin. And I, you know, I may have managed a case for four years or three years, and I don't know the intimate details of the evidence until they stand there and say what it is in front of me or kind of give me a clue during pretrial testimony. So I think 
important pointed motions in limine that you can uh, say to yourself, okay, I got an automobile accident and uh, cocaine's found on the guy's lap uh, after the crash. And someone's trying to keep that out of evidence because it is highly prejudicial. That's a motion in limine. Uh, that's something that the judge would take note of and probably not permit any testimony until it can be established that that's relevant to the case. But just filing motions in limine to file them because there may, may be some mention of insurance or this or that. I think the lawyers that do try cases are skilled enough to know most of the evidence and the things that you can get in trouble on. And we also have, as you know, uh, a cursory instructions to the jury if something is admitted mm -hmm. inadvertently to tell the jury uh, they should not. And in civil cases, especially on review, I don't think you're going to find an appellate court to say that it was something that was so prejudicial if the judge told the jury to ignore it, because we presume the jury is following um, the mm -hmm. judge's instructions. So I think they have a point in criminal, especially when there's something highly inflammatory. In civil, just generic motions and limine don't help the judge. It angers the judge. I, I, most of my colleagues don't like lawyers setting motions and limine for a hearing weeks or months before the trial because the judge doesn't know enough about the case. And he's kind of ruling blindly. And then when the evidence comes up at trial or whatever the subject was that you ruled on at pretrial, you all of a sudden say to yourself, oh, wait a minute, maybe I should allow that in. Why did I keep right. that out uh, on, a, on a motion in limine? So I think they need to be more targeted to very specific evidence that, that you think if the cat gets out of the bag, you can't put the cat back in the bag uh, mm -hmm. kind of evidence. Um, and if not, they uh, just aren't very helpful to the judge. Yeah, the, we had a template at the state attorney's office of dozens of things that you could argue for motions and limine. And our training director was always preaching exactly what you just did, you know, use them when they're appropriate, make sure you're not filing stuff that, that really is not pertinent to your case. And the other thing was make sure you discuss the motion and limine with opposing counsel. Right. Cause there may, cause there may be some things you can work out. A lot of times. And again, I'm in complex business. So I'm getting a lawyer that's uh, 55 years plus, you know, right. uh, that has a lot of experience some of them don't have a lot of courtroom experience, but they usually work most of these things out. And at the very least, they could work it out to say, as long as it's not mentioned in opening, when it comes up during the case, we'll take it sidebar or outside the presence of the jury and and we'll get the issue um, resolved. What about motions in general, Judge? Obviously, trial court judges are extremely busy. They have massive caseloads, but motions are important. They're part of the practice. What can lawyers do to help judges in terms of motion practice? Like, what do you like to see in a motion? Well, okay. So this is my 41st year practicing law. And uh, during my uh, career as a litigator, I went to more motion calendars that I never like to admit to. <laughs> but the one thing that has been constant since we developed motion calendar was that the lawyers are supposed to confer with each other, arguably before they even file the motion, mm -hmm. but they're certainly supposed to confer with each other before they call a matter up in front of the judge. And I think there's nothing that's going to get the ire of a judge greater than two lawyers meeting for the first time on motion calendar, never discuss these 12 interrogatories they want the judge to rule on. And I think if you were to ask me how the lawyers can improve, they can improve by calling their colleague, texting their colleague, emailing their colleague, and try to narrow the issues before the judge. And when you go in front of the judge and you can honestly say, judge, we discussed this last night. We tried our best. We're just at a wall. We need your intervention. Judges are 100% happy to do that. But when you come and say for the first time in on motion calendar, we just met five minutes ago in the hall, it's not going to enamor yourself to the judge. The other thing that comes up in motion calendar are things that truly aren't uh, eligible for motion calendar. Somebody sets something that requires a witness to be called, or somebody mm. will call up 23 interrogatories and five requests to produce on a five-minute motion calendar where the judge has 15 other cases to dispose of in basically 30 to 40 minutes. Mm -hmm. So 
Uh, it needs to be the kind of motion that can get on there, be heard in five minutes, both sides being able to say their piece, and the judge move to the next case. Now, I, I still hold a motion calendar on Wednesdays in my division, but I'll tell you one thing I've noticed uh, in this division particularly, and I think it should be more consistent in the other divisions is, I'll have nine motion calendars on Monday when I go and look at what I have on Wednesday morning. And when I flip it up on Wednesday morning, I may have three left or four. And it just shows me that the lawyers are doing what uh, are required. Talk to each other, see if you can work it out and resolve your differences. Motion calendar and my years of litigation definitely has a place because special set calendars are generally backed up a month or two. And so to get on and see the judge about something that's uh, that's important that keeps keeps the case moving, um, I think it definitely has a place. It's not going to go away. It is definitely changed with the advent of Zoom. What about uh, when you when you get a motion? What do you like to see in it? What's the the most helpful way a lawyer can craft a motion for a judge who is particularly busy? Well, you just hit the nail on the head. It has to be short and concise and to the point. Uh, you know, when you and every lawyer does it. I'm sure I was guilty of it. When you when you have a motion and you cite eight paragraphs about the law on, uh, you know, four corners of the complaint or whatever it is, every judge has known that since since grade school. Uh, that doesn't really help me. What is it that you want to frame uh, and what is it you want me to know? And it does help definitely in complex business that the other side has filed some reply to it, even if it's very generic and very short, because then I know what both parties' positions are when I call a case up. And I and I do read everything. That's another thing about motion calendar. Some of the judges don't have limitations. They may have 20 or 25 on busy days. Mm. If you do the math on five minutes, uh, it doesn't really work out. So it's really important that if you cancel a motion calendar or you resolve it, you go on electronically, it's very easy on CMS and cancel it because a lot of these judges do read everything and you're asking them to read. I quit doing it in division because I would inevitably go in and read 10 of them. I go in and there'd be one person sitting there. So it was a complete waste of my time. So motion practice has, it, motion practice has its place. With Zoom, it's definitely changed. I think Zoom mm. has become... And there'll be a lot of debate on this. It'll debate probably long after I'm uh, on this planet whether the Zoom is effective or not effective. I think it is highly effective on motion calendar. We're situated in Broward between Dade and Palm Beach. You have a lot of crossover with lawyers. Having to pay a, a, pay, a client pay you to drive across the county line for a five-minute hearing is just unproductive. And I mm -hmm. think motion calendar, like in domestic uh, family, people can get divorced online. Uh, the people that are paying their lawyers can see what's going on in their case. And so um, I think it's changed the dynamics of motion calendar, in my mind, uh, much to uh, the uh, an advantage to both the lawyers um, and the judiciary. I actually have a question from someone, from a colleague of mine, and that's it's directly on this issue. She asked, what is the court's policy regarding remote hearings? We're seeing a lot of these requests, even unopposed requests, being denied in Broward. Okay, that's an ire of mine as well. My policy is uh, you can attend in the courtroom, you can attend on Zoom, you can attend from your car. I don't care where you're at, as long as you, and it's really on you uh, that you have a good connection and we're able to hear you. That's a problem with Zoom sometimes when people are driving down I-95 trying to conduct a hearing. Yeah. They don't have a very good signal. It, it's it, it make, it, it, it's kind of embarrassing to the lawyer because they are trying to be heard. I have a few colleagues that I don't know a single colleague, uh, and I'd like to know if there is, requires anybody to come uh, to court on motion calendar. All of my colleagues, uh, I've tried to establish a policy, anybody who wants to attend motion calendar on Zoom should be permitted to do that. Some of my colleagues require um, in-person appearances on special sets, yeah. and, almost, and almost all of them uh, require 
uh, people to be present if it's an evidentiary hearing. Sure. Now, I'm in the minority to that. I would say probably I allow anybody, as long as everybody agrees, to appear by Zoom or to appear in the courtroom. And I have to say it it is probably a personal deal. It harkens back to my 25 years of driving to uh, downtown Miami and downtown West Palm Beach and getting there yep. for a 15 minute hearing and a driving rainstorm. And you can only bill your clients so much, even though yeah. it took you a long time to do it. But I wish over the years we could get more uniform on that, uh, Robert. But look, these are all constitutional officers. Mm -hmm. uh, I can only dictate policy so much. I can't be a dictator. I would like to encourage my cl client, uh, colleagues to be more receptive to Zoom, but some are still a little bit uh, reluctant. They would like people to be in person. Is your policy um, or your practice to also allow, I, I think you might have answered this, but I just want to clarify, evidentiary hearings on Zoom? I've conducted evidentiary hearings on trial on Zoom. I've conducted jury trials and non-jury trials where witnesses have appeared on Zoom, both in the courtroom and wherever they're at. I have found not a single glitch. Now, I will say that those that do this, uh, they go out and they hire people who can run the technology, mm. who, uh, who, who make sure everything is flawless in the courtroom. They have a mm -hmm. lot of money, some of these lawyers and some of these clients that I that are involved in these multi-million dollar business cases. So it may be that in the smaller case, lawyers don't have the aptitude to do that. But look, uh, I've said a million times in the courtroom, uh, you don't have to spend a lot of money. Get your 16-year-old kid over here. He could probably do it for <laughs> you better than uh, some of these gurus. Because I will say, uh, especially the older lawyers, they are a little challenged with this technology. They yeah. We're not used to it. But that's why I think we should have a circuit-wide policy that if you want to come to the courtroom, you can. If you don't want to come to the courtroom, you don't have to. Now, I will say I'm at an advantage. I have a very highly techno technologically courtroom. You can see the witness. You can see the courtroom. You can see everything. Usually on Zoom, you can only see the judge uh, and, mm -hmm. and the lawyers that are on the Zoom screen. So by having a courtroom, which we are going to equip every civil courtroom to have the same technology, you can see the witness, you can pan over to the lawyer who's asking the questions, you can see a full sh a shot of the courtroom, and you can see the judge. So it makes it much better than just being able to hear what someone says. This way you can see them. The jury could see the witnesses. I haven't had a single person tell me, a judge, that you can't evaluate the credibility, believability, all those things we have to do from a witness when they're on a TV screen or they're sitting five feet in front of you uh, in the witness box. Yeah. Before we move off the topic of motion practice, although we've gotten a little bit off the topic already, what about lawyers and their appearance on Zoom? Do you find lawyers are showing up not properly dressed for hearings? And if so, do you think that that's, you know, how do you think judges receive that? Okay. Are you talking about the lawyers or their clients? The lawyers, I'm assuming. Yes, the lawyers. Okay. Well, we've had a spat of that when we started Zoom right after we opened up after COVID. We had lawyers dressing in different ways. I have said since day one, preached since day one, Zoom is exactly as being in the courtroom. Would you mm -hmm. dress, behave, do anything different in the courtroom than you're doing on Zoom? Now, we instituted, I think we're the only circuit that did, did this, a kind of a, a dress down policy when we had all those days where it was 100 degrees where lawyers could dress without a, a jacket, come in formally, but business attire. I have not seen any of that in complex business, but again, I have a different mm -hmm. group of lawyers. We have had lawyers, I think more so along your question, not their dress, but like I said before, trying to do a hearing in their car, trying to do a hearing from some remote location where they're moving around and the, the film, you know, they're not holding the phone uh, still. It, it, that can be distracting to everybody involved in the hearing. But I would say as a whole, we have had very little problems that I have been made aware of 
with a lawyer's dress code on Zoom, more so uh, the uh, people who are appearing in, for instance, first appearance or an arraignment or something like that in criminal court, some of the pro se's, but they do the same in the courtroom. Come to court with, uh, I would say, uh, wearing the uh, Alice Cooper shirt or whatever it is. <laughs> signifies who they believe in. Uh, but look, as a judge, Robert, I have to say, unless it's disruptive, I tend to ignore that because I've got mm. to get through the day. I've got to yeah. I've got to resolve the conflict that's in front of me. And if I get embroiled in those kinds of things, yeah. other than maintaining the, de the decorum, uh, I just get on tangents and it, it's not healthy to me or them. A little earlier, you said that when we were talking about the the remote hearings and remote hearings being denied. And you said that you'd sure like to know about that stuff. Is there a mechanism in place where a litigant lawyer can come, can, can go directly to you with concerns about a particular judge? Well, of course, if people call, we won't take the call as far as if they were, if they're complaining about a judge, I require the things to be in writing because I don't, I, if I'm going to confront the judge or I'm going to confront whatever the issue is, I need to make sure people are backing it up rather than mm -hmm. some hostile litigant calling over there just complaining that, right. that the judge ruled inappropriately. We get emails daily, uh, for sure, from pro se's. They come to my Division 07 email address. They don't come to me directly. I have access to that email address. So both lawyers and litigants. Uh, complain about various things. And I generally, uh, if it's something I need to deal with, I deal with it. If it's something that uh, in a particular division, I'll send it to the administrative judge and they'll go talk to the judge about it. I would say with judges, 99% of the complaints I get are somebody aggrieved about a ruling. Yeah. Uh, the lawyers tend to write me more, as you as you say, on procedural things. Why this or why that? And oftentimes the lawyers are right. And we we do intervene and correct it if I think the lawyer's got a good point or they've made a good point. So I'm always available to, to field those kinds of calls. People shouldn't be intimidated or reluctant to email me if they think that something's going astray. I, we have 90 judges, 11 magistrates. That's 101 people making a ruling every five minutes. So you mm -hmm. can... You can surmise that, uh, you know, there's going to be a lot of uh, unhappy customers on any given day. Let me pause for a moment to thank the law office of Scott and Richardson, PA, for supporting this podcast. Scott is a former prosecutor who now focuses exclusively on criminal defense. And he is one of the leading criminal defense lawyers in Florida. I have known Scott for several years and litigated against him when I was a prosecutor. All the prosecutors, judges, and defense lawyers that I know regard Scott as a phenomenal lawyer. He is a consummate professional and always zealously advocates for his clients. Scott has been board certified in criminal law for nearly 30 years and has been practicing law for over 40 years. He is a fellow at the American College of Trial Lawyers, an honor bestowed on only 1% of all lawyers in any state. If you need representation, reach out to Scott at 561 471 9600 or find him at scottnrichardsonlaw.com. Let's shift gears and talk a little bit about hearings. Even substantive hearings are usually pretty short these days. I had I was working on a case where we had a a hearing on a motion for reconsideration um in the trial court and you know we got 15 minutes. So, you know, seven and a half minutes per side. Well, first, do you see that as, you know, the, in the long run, that's where we're going to stay with these very short hearings, even on matters of substance? Well, everybody here, and I think now in all three counties, have a similar system of letting the lawyers uh, self-schedule certain hearings, and civil particularly. You can schedule in Broward County a 30-minute hearing, self-schedule it online with your colleague, picking whatever date the judge has available and schedule it. You also can schedule a 15 minute hearing. If you, in my division and most of the judges I think are the same, if you want more than 30 minutes, you generally have to write the judge or email the judge, attach your motion and say, we're asking for an hour. 
So in my division, what I generally do is say, okay, I'll give you the hour. Why don't you and the other side go online and try to block two 30-minute hearing times together? Because I don't care about hearing time and all this. What I do care about, what you just referred to is, are you wasting my time for the 23 minutes that are left during the hearing? So mm -hmm. I really, really, really trust the lawyers with this aspect of it because they know what the issue is and they know how much time they really need from me. They know in my division that I read everything that I can. I can't read everything, but I'll read certainly this, the ma major substantive points of the motions uh, before they come before me. So I don't need them to regurgitate everything that I've already read. But um, that is an ongoing problem because it, it, attorneys who abuse it, Robert, they abuse it to the detriment of their colleagues because they mm -hmm. block time that the judge would otherwise have available and be able to move people up into those slots. The other thing that uh, consistently uh, is an issue is lawyers not canceling in advance special mm -hmm. hearings because most of my colleagues in civil and I think throughout the circuit read whatever they're faced with either the day before or certainly that day and mm -hmm. they're reading all of these materials and they find out nobody bothered to go on CMS and all they got to do is hit a button say it's canceled by agreement of yeah. the law and the other thing that ties into this is some judges you can get a special set hearing pretty quickly with me two weeks Others, because the other judges uh, in the regular divisions, they have 1,500 cases. I have 200. And so they have a longer lag time in getting hearing time sometimes. So if your question is on the 15 versus 30 minutes, I don't think anybody in the circuit cares if you block those times as long as you're going to use the time efficiently with the judge. Let's say the motion is set for 15 minutes. What is most helpful to you from the lawyer? What can the lawyer focus on in that seven and a half minutes? Okay, two things uh, that are collateral to that. First, we have a mechanism in CMS. When you schedule the hearing, it has a little, I don't know how to describe it at the bottom, but it says supporting documents. And it'll have mm -hmm. a little logo there saying that the lawyers filed their supporting documents here. That is extraordinarily helpful to me. I don't have to go look through a case that's three years old, all the documents or all the pleadings that they're referring to. Mm -hmm. So that helps me tremendously. They also sometimes will upload a few cases in there that they want me to read. Sometimes I'll read them, sometimes I won't. But that helps the judges tremendously. But I I, I just don't know beyond an educated, skilled, experienced lawyer knowing that he's conferred with his colleague and if they've got 27 freaking interrogatories they want the judge to resolve and you want him to do it in seven minutes, that's what the judge is going to give you. And that's what I give them. So I try to teach the lawyers. I'll go online and say, you all schedule 15 minutes on this hearing, play it. The moving party gets 15. Uh, and I'll give him a couple minutes after the 15 for rebuttal. The other side gets 15. And then there are other people waiting in my queue. So I try to be on time. I think Zoom has helped us. Mm -hmm. job being on time remember the old days when you're in the courtroom and you go yeah. in you know your 11 o'clock hearing and somebody on the 10 30s gaggling on and then he's got a 10 45 after that and you know zoom has made us be i think more conscious uh, of time both as judges and lawyers mm -hmm. all of this really comes down to knowing your case and making sure that you're bringing forth the right issues but do you find it that lawyers are scheduling hearings for things that really don't need a hearing? For example, are there things that the judge can just resolve on the papers? The answer is yes, yes, and yes. I often, in my division, ask the lawyers, you know, even though they may have an hour set, do you want is both, both sides asking me to agree on the papers, uh, rule on the papers? And oftentimes, as I said, the experienced lawyers say, judge, that's fine. It's it's the way you do in federal court now and have done for, you know, last hundred years. Um, and oftentimes, oftentimes in business, especially you get into the hearing and they're not saying anything different than what's in their pleadings. Right. Now, sometimes in division, you'll get surprised. Somebody will be making an argument to you and you say to yourself, or I say to the lawyers, you know, that's a really, really good argument. 
uh, on the on this motion to dismiss, but none of it's in your papers. When right. you're talking about it, it makes a lot more sense. It's much more clear to me, but none of it's in your paperwork. So mm -hmm. what do you want me to do? You're going to have to amend the complaint if you're if, if that's what you're really uh, geared towards alleging. Every judge has, you know, look, as I said, we have 17 judges in circuit civil. Everybody kind of has their own uh, methodology and their madness to how they hear these things. But on motion calendar, over and over and over, I hear from my colleagues the, the wasteful motions that are filed, mm -hmm. that are just filed to maybe generate revenue, mm -hmm. that could have been worked out, that don't advance the case. You know, with these case management rules we have now, every judge is looking at how does this advance the case? If I can rule on this, is this going to move the case towards fruition? Is this going to get me to a point where uh, I can set the case for trial? So that's what the judges are looking for these days is a fruitful motion that moves the case in some direction. But we do get a lot of, I'll just say it, garbage motions mm -hmm. on the motion calendar that are, that are, that are primarily wasteful. I want to talk a little bit about caseload and trial scheduling. What right now is the, what's the total number of active cases uh, in civil on the 17th? Okay. Uh, I don't know county right off the top of my head. Circuit civil is a uh, ballpark of 32,000, although that number has come down. We have caseloads. I've been in circuit civil. I was the admin judge there for, I think, almost 10 years before I became chief judge. We have never, ever seen uh, the case counts that we're experiencing now in circuit civil. These judges, uh, my colleagues, they are just moving these cases. And I give them 100% all of the credit. They're using all of the things the Supreme Court mandated us to do. Uh, it used to be uh, way back when uh, there were some judges who had 3,000 cases in circuit civil. I would say back then the average was probably 2,500. Now the case count is substantially less than 2,000. Um, huh. So it makes a big difference because the judge is running the case. The case isn't running the judge. When you get so many cases, yeah. I mean, it happens in criminal too. You know, you're just kind of biding time every day, moving whatever's in front of you, and you're not making any dent in the overall uh, population of your cases. So mm -hmm. the and county court, the aberration county court is this. We have appellate court decisions in PIP cases, especially where they basically say, well, if State Farm does business in Broward County and the accident occurred in Pensacola, you can file a case in Broward County. And we have lawyers who have large uh, volumes of PIP cases some of the lawyers, most of the lawyers are in Broward County. They'll file thousands of cases that have no relation to Broward County in Broward County. We had one month after they passed the court reform law, mm -hmm. uh, uh, County Civil got 18,000 new cases. Oh. Their case, their overall case count at its peak has been in the hundreds of thousands compared to Circuit Civil. And it is primarily because these lawyers, for whatever reason, they may file here because they have an office here. They may file here because they think the, the judges are more generous when they assess attorney's fees. Mm -hmm. I don't know the real reason, uh, but uh, it's just something we uh, we have to face uh, year in and year out when, uh, when we assign cases. So does that mean that the county court judges have like 10,000 cases each? They don't have 10,000 cases each. I don't know... The exact case count number. It is far less than what you describe. One of the dockets that has the most cases in county court is a credit card division we created. One judge handles all the credit cards basically under, maybe it's under 50,000. I can't remember the exact jurisdiction now over there, but all the credit card cases get filed in front of her. And that is a huge volume. I mean, oh, yeah. especially in bad times, people are just defaulting on credit card debt you know, kind of right and left. I, I apologize. I just don't know the. No, the it's fine. It's fine. They don't have 10,000 cases. They'd never be able but, to. Manage. Yeah. Yeah. But it, it's, it's certainly thousands of cases. Thousands, multi yeah. thousands of cases. Wow. Unbelievable. Most of them are PIP driven circuit civil. I don't know if you know, 
we are we continue to be overwhelmed with water loss cases. There are thousands of untried water loss cases. We run a pool system where if your case goes away, you can go to the pool system and grab a case that a judge has said is ready for trial. And every single week I look over there, there's about 15 cases. They're all water loss cases. Mm-hmm. Uh, we I don't we, we've given some to our uh, foreclosure judge, Judge Garcia Wood. We have just not been able, despite our best efforts, to get those cases out of the court system. The new laws might eventually uh, help us on that, the new tort laws, but uh, we we still have thousands of water loss cases in circuit court. Wow. It's incredible that the judges are able to do the jobs that they do with that kind of a caseload. Well, it's, um, not, it's not a friendly thing to come to uh, work every day, and the only thing you work on is a water loss case. Yeah. I mean, it, it does become frustrating. Yeah. I have another question from from a friend, and this is about summary judgment. Uh, it's kind of multi-part, but what's been the impact of the of the summary judgment standard change, and has have you seen an increase in those filings, and has that led to more cases being disposed on summary judgment? Okay, the answer to all three is yes. I think the new rule has had fairly significant consequences on 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 cases in circuit civil and county i think my colleagues are granting more uh, motions for summary judgment because of the latitude the new uh, law has given us to uh, consider things whereas before it was just one little thing uh, that would be mm-hmm. a actual issue would say you can't grant the motion i think uh, we are seeing more filed I think we're seeing more granted. Uh, there's, you know, I don't think if you did the greatest study in the world, you'd find a correlation as to why, except the fact that uh, it has given the judges uh, latitude to consider things that uh, might be in the past you could not consider. I will say in these construction cases I have, and I will say overall, the reason many summary judgments are granted is not because of the judge. It's because it's a lousy issue. You've got mm. a weak issue. Whoever filed or whoever, whoever's involved in the case, you've got a weak issue. You know, in these construction cases, when a hotel is built and you get 50 different parties and you're suing, yeah. the, tile, you're suing the tile guy and right. the tile guy, you know, what do you do? You put down a few tiles that were bad. I mean, and they file a motion for summary judgment. And even the expert for the plaintiff has very little, if any, to say about the tile guy. And right. so you want to get summary judgments uh, on those cases. I think in my division, they're overall, they're better briefed. Uh, the responses, uh, knowing that the rule has changed, are more thorough than before. And uh, I think there's a whole panoply of why uh, more of them are being uh, granted. We'll see. Uh you know, this has only been in effect a while. Um, mm-hmm. So we're going to have to see from the DCA, our DCA right. and others, how they view it, uh, if they view it in the same way the trial judges um, are viewing it. Because when you're a judge, you always have to be cognizant of the appellate court. You mm-hmm. don't have to be obsessed about it, but you certainly have to say, okay, is this is something they're going to view and say, uh, what planet was Tudor on when he did this? You always have to have the whether your DCA is a conservative or liberal on a particular issue uh, when you when you when you rule on these things. Yeah. Another question is: Are case management plans and orders here to stay? Have they actually helped to clear the dockets? Well, one thousand percent yes on both of those. I'm not exactly a fan of how it got instituted. It got instituted, if some of you may remember right in the middle of COVID, we got an order from Supreme Court, chief judges did, basically uh, start reviewing your cases and start case managing. It kind of hit us like a thud because I still didn't have our courthouse open yet. But overall, what has been done between uh, the people who've been on these committees, including our own Robert Lee, has been a positive change. 
to move cases. Uh, some of the lawyers don't like it. Jimmy Kahn in the federal uh, courts used to be uh, quoted uh, often, and I use the quote, I stole this quote often, that lawyers are uh, habitual procrastinators. <laughs> they, won't, they won't move the case till they get a trial order. They won't move something till the judge orders it. And now with case management, having to live with your own case management order that you file with the judge, in complex business, I don't even need a case to be at issue to set it for trial. So I can just set the case for trial for all these people who are hiding in the dark, hoping that uh, you know they can hide behind that. It doesn't work as the same in complex. But I think most of the judges are respectful of uh, when the lawyers, through their CMO, are asking for a date for trial. And that's when they will generally trigger um, the trial order. But I will say, unlike in the past, Robert, most of the judges, because of the direction we're getting from the Florida Supreme Court, once you get on a case, once you get on a, a trial order, you better be ready to go. The old mm -hmm. days, you know, coming to calendar call and the first 18 uh, wanted to be moved to the third week. Yeah. Those days are gone. And the judges are are making people kind of follow the order. We're not, you know, uh, ridiculous about it. But if you get on a trial order, the message is you better be ready for trial when uh when you're near the, the counter call. We, we certainly give excuses to lawyers who are having health problems, yeah. who are having health problems, but absent a really good excuse, um, you're going to go to trial. That, Robert, in and of itself, has helped to move the case counts. Uh, the yeah. 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 So I have two final questions for you. Uh, they don't really pertain to the court system. The first one is, what do you like most about being a judge? Well, okay, uh, for me, it's a double answer because uh, I'm chief judge and a judge. I have a full division. I've had a full division since I became chief judge. Uh, the, the nuances of being the chief judge are multifaceted. Most weeks, I uh, treasure coming into work and I just do my docket and I go home. But that's not what happens. Uh, the uh, week ago, two weeks ago, the North Elevators, prisoner transport elevators, mm -hmm. down. Uh, we had a hundred meetings about that. There's always something uh, from a chief judge's standpoint that gets in your way during the week that redirects you. Uh, that part of the job to me is fascinating in part and uh, discouraging in part because uh, no, no two weeks are the same. And uh, my responsibilities just go in different direct directions when I come to work. I've always uh, enjoyed uh, the banter back and forth with really mm -hmm. good lawyers. Mm -hmm. uh, I tend to be more Socratic. If a lawyer says something, I'll call him on it. Well, and I will often call a lawyer on the weakest point in his case or his argument, right. make him defend his position. And so I, I still enjoy going to court. Uh, handling dockets, interacting with jurors. Uh, I, I, it's the same for me since I began in 2004. Uh, nothing has changed. My change will be when I, when my head won't get off the pillow in the morning and say, I'm done with this. I just, I've done it long enough. I, I don't want to do it anymore. Mm -hmm. And that day's not here yet, but um, it's it's around the corner for all of us, right? <laughs> yeah. And the final question is, if you had a, a, you know, a courtroom full of lawyers who've been practicing less than five years, what would be your biggest point of advice that you could give them? Practicing law right now for younger folks, uh, as opposed to when I started, is a very difficult thing in my mind. And it's been changed by the advent of electronic communications. In the old days, we used to call each other. We discussed something. We'd have some interaction with our colleague. We'd at least introduce ourselves to each other that we're going to be on mm -hmm. a case for the next two years. Nowadays, it tends to be communications by text or email or some other communication. And some of that communication can be downright bad. Um, I get it still in my division. I will read it, but they still send it to me to show what a louse the other side is. If I were giving lawyers uh, one bit of advice, and that would be to be more lawyerly, 
to call your colleague, introduce your colleague, shake hands when the case is over and move on to the next case. Younger lawyers need to be able to cope with both the practice of law and their own life. I mean, when you get to my age um, and you think us judges are sitting in a room talking about lawyers and lawyerly topics and case law, we're talking about, you know, the new blood pressure medication or who recently had an operation or who's the <laughs> cardiologist in town. And there's a reason for that, Robert. It, the reason is we've lived with this for 40 some odd years doing this. Yeah. So there's hope that young lawyers would have a, a healthy part of practicing law in a professional way with their colleagues, but also step away from law and don't take whatever happens in the courtroom personal. Go out with your family. Uh, forget what you did that day. Stop reading emails at seven o'clock at night. That's kind of my advice. And I'll tell you one th thing, if you're not able to do it as a lawyer, if you become a judge, I know damn well you're not going to be reading emails at seven o'clock at night or eight o'clock at night because uh, it's just not part of the occupation. But it's a tough job compared to when I was practicing law, being a lawyer these days. Uh, it's just far more difficult. I remember the days where somebody you'd ask somebody to send you something, Robert, and they'd send it by mail. It'd take three days to get there. And yeah. now these people gripe if they don't get a response in 45 seconds after they yeah. email. So yeah. times have really changed, but it's a tough profession, but I hope people will be able to separate the profession from their own life. Chief Judge Tudor, it's been a pleasure and an honor. Thank you very much for taking time out of your schedule. I just, I really do appreciate it. Well, thank you very much. I enjoyed, uh, I enjoyed talking to everybody and uh, appreciate the invitation. Good luck to everybody practicing law. Thank you, sir. All right, folks, that's a wrap. I want to thank Chief Judge Tudor again for taking time out of what I can imagine is a very, very busy schedule. It was a pleasure having him on. I want to thank you all for listening to the podcast. Please subscribe and rate and review the podcast on whatever podcast platform you're using. I also want to thank my friend Chris Clark of Pendulum Productions, LLC, for editing and producing this podcast. You can find him and his work at vimeo.com backslash Pendulum Productions. All right, folks, until next time, remember, case law is one word. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an advertisement for legal services. The information provided on this podcast is not intended to be legal advice. You should not rely on what you hear on this podcast as legal advice. If you have a legal issue, please contact a lawyer. The views and opinions expressed by the hosts and guests are solely those of the individuals and do not represent the views or opinions of the firms or organizations with which they are affiliated or the views and opinions of this podcast's advertisers. This podcast is available for private, non-commercial use only. Any editing, reproduction, or redistribution of this podcast for commercial use or monetary gain without the expressed written consent of the podcast's creators is prohibited. Music